Hello, my friends. How are you today? You're listening to the St. Mark Bemidji Sunday Edition Podcast, which is brought to you by Church Potluck Surprise. Yes, Church Potluck Surprise. You thought it was peach cobbler when you took that big spoonful, but it wasn't. This podcast features a replay of our Sunday sermon, or on occasion, a sermon from another Wells sister church. Today's sermon is titled, No Hope Without Christ, and is based on Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but... I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. And you need to, all you need to say simply is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now we join Pastor Zamzow for today's sermon. In Christ Jesus, in whose name we have our greatest hope, amen. Probably heard it said, quite a few times in your life as Christians. There is no hope without Christ. There is no hope without Christ. The Gospel reading from Matthew that we heard just a little bit ago, part 3 of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, highlights this fact abundantly. As the Savior preaches to His disciples here, He highlights the true nature of the original intent and meaning behind God's law, so that, as Paul says in Romans, everybody must keep their teeth together when they stand before God. Nobody can stand up and say like that rich young ruler, all these I have kept since I was a boy. No, Jesus lowers the boom. 
He levels everybody flat. There is no escape for anybody. Under the words of Jesus, there's no outlet for somebody to hear this third part of the Sermon on the Mount and think to themselves, that may or may not apply to me. But there's something for everybody here, and Jesus masterfully does this, and he proclaims heart-stopping, soul-rocking law to all in his hearing that day and again here today. All of this is said to drive home the point that there is no hope without Him. There is no hope without Christ. Maybe you can picture the crowd sitting there, the crowd of Jesus' disciples, not just the twelve, but many of Jesus' disciples, standing there in, or sitting there in the grass on the foot of the hill as Jesus preached that day. And as He goes on, they shake their heads in, a, in agreement as He begins to say that anybody who... You've heard it said that Anybody that murders is subject to uh, is subject to judgment. Yes, yep, mm -hmm, yep, we agree with that. We're all on board. But then this escalates a little bit quickly, doesn't it? Because what's the next thing out of his mouth? He says, if you call somebody raka, which is kind of like dunce or empty head, you'll be subject to judgment. And then he says, if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Really? He equates murder with name-calling? Or a general hatred or dislike of somebody? This to stop the person who says, well, I've not actually killed anybody. I haven't driven a knife into anybody. Or I haven't, in our case, maybe I haven't shot anybody. I must be good. Jesus equates hatred with murder and says it's the exact same thing. And even now we might sit here and wonder to ourselves, well, come on, how can that be? Isn't that just a little bit extreme? I mean, I'm sure you've all seen those murder shows on TV, true crime or whatnot. Murder is gory. It's bloody. Hatred seems kind of clean by comparison. It can be a passing thing or change from person to person, from day to day or from year to year. But where does the sin begin? Does the sin begin in the outward action? Does the sin begin by pulling the trigger or the, or the slice of a knife? Where, what is the chief desire behind murder anyway? Isn't it to cut somebody off from you? so that they might not breathe the same air as you or in your general vicinity? To end them? To be apart from them? Isn't that the same as hatred? To push somebody away? To say that we can't stand them? To take up... I don't want to even take up the same space in the same room as that person. I can't stand to be around them for more than five minutes, if that... So we want to cut them out of our life or to cancel them or to get rid of them? And we've all done that in one way, shape, or form with a friend or a sibling or a co-worker or a fellow church member, a parent or a child. We know the darkness of the human heart. Parents, we've maybe been there at 2.30 in the morning and we haven't gone to sleep yet. 
And you just want the crying or the whining to stop. And you know the darkness of the thoughts that go through your head in that moment. In the heat of anger as hatred for your own child burns. We all readily agree. You've heard it said. Abortion is murder. Yet how many of us in the darkness of our hearts have hated, murdered our own children? So Jesus says, if you're going to the temple, if you're going up to the temple and you've got your offering and think that everything is right in your vertical relationship between you and God, but you've got something against somebody, you're holding a grudge, or you hate somebody, you are dead wrong. Drop it there at the altar. Go be reconciled with the person. The same is true of Holy Communion. We're not having it today, but when one comes forward to receive the forgiveness that Jesus won for you, but we bear some grudge or anger or hatred in our hearts towards somebody, do not come forward. First, go and make amends. Offer forgiveness or receive forgiveness or ask for forgiveness knowing how Christ forgives you. Oftentimes, we treat forgiveness as though it's property, as though it's ours to be dealt out, to be dished out as we will when we see fit. Forgiveness is in the realm of God and His possession alone. It's His will to give. And He gave it to all. And so how can one receive Jesus' forgiveness? How can one come up and receive Jesus' forgiveness, His true body and His true blood, and still hold a grudge? Still hold some hatred in the heart for somebody else, a fellow sinner? No, rather remember that for you and for that other person, there is no hope without Christ. It's not just you that need Him. It's not just them that need Him. Both of you need Him. The Lord goes on to speak about, naturally then, the flow of thought about settling debts. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus touches on something here that's very important to each and every one of our human hearts, and it's connected with the idea of forgiveness. Because naturally, human beings want what is fair. We want what's fair. If we're wronged, we want restitution. We want payback. And Jesus' words here remind us that we will be judged by the measure with which we use to judge. That we might consider what actually is fair. What is fair for our sinfulness? We deserve hell. For our murderous thoughts, for our unmerciful attitude, what's upcoming, our inclination towards coveting, our inclination towards lust. Hell for all eternity. Separation from God. That is what is fair. It's the reason why Jesus speaks so harshly here with regard to sin. Because even maybe as we begin a new paragraph in the sermon, we've already forgotten the severity of sin and the darkness of the human heart. 
Because we are horrible judges. We are horrible judges when it comes down to what is sinful and what is good. We're awful when it comes to deciding whatever the lesser evil is. Christ makes it clear that it's all bad. It's all damnable. It's all horrible. That by rights we should all be cast away from God forever. But the reason He came, the reason He sat on that hillside that day, the reason He spoke these words to His disciples and to us as we hear them again this morning, the reason that I repeat them is so that we might recognize what an incredible thing it is He has done for us to show us our great need for Him. To see how God is not fair in settling debts. But how we lump the entire penalty for all of it upon Christ. Jesus lays out and clarifies the law and shows us the true depravity of the human heart. And He does so, not, don't take Him wrong, He doesn't do this to just shame people but to show us how high the bar for perfection is. As God says, as we hear Jesus say, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection means keeping the law to the letter, and that doesn't mean in some outward, superficial way. That means the depth of the way that Jesus is teaching here. Hatred is murder. Or as we'll hear in a moment, adultery is the same as lusting. Jesus doesn't skirt around it or under it. But Jesus rather shows us that this is how high the bar is set. This is where the level of perfection is at. And He doesn't try to get around it anyway, but He holds Himself to it. If you were here last week, you heard, you heard Jesus say in part two of the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Because I can't. You can't. No one out there in the world can. There is no hope without Christ. Without Him, we're all bound for eternity in hell. Even for what we've judged to be the smallest or the least sin, and naturally, from a human perspective, sins carry different weight, don't they? As they affect somebody differently. And I think maybe that's why. We often think that sins carry different weight or some are worse than others. You might watch one of those true, true crime shows and think to yourself, man, that's awful. How could that, that person do such a horrible thing? At the same time, you might tell a fisherman's tale and the fish was this big, but you said it was this big. And we kind of say, well, it, it, it's not really the same. You know, there's, there's a different weight or, or a different weight to sin. We can categorize those sins because sins seem more harmful or more public or greater or lesser than others. But consider the idea of adultery and lust that Jesus speaks about next. Lust, for example, is a thing that remains completely unseen. One can commit it. One can commit that sin without anybody really knowing. Even two people who commit adultery can try to keep a secret. It remains beneath the surface. But as we see in the example given in 2 Samuel, the situation with David, holding that sin 
Quiet is like trying to hold water in a paper bag. Just how frail our resistance is to sin. From coveting to lust to lies to murder, that's the way that it escalates in 2 Samuel. You couldn't even perceive it from the outside if you were a fly on the wall. You would have had no, no idea what is going on. It was just a letter. Just a letter that David sent with one of his soldiers back to the front. Nobody would have been the wiser. These are volatile sins. They offend God and they, they, they have the potential for exploding out into even more public and offensive sins. The danger to our faith, to our salvation, is just as great as if we think that we can keep these things under wraps or that we can keep something like lust or coveting hidden. It's dangerous because we try to minimize it to ourselves and say, well, I'm not really hurting anybody. I'm not really doing anything. We hush the conscience down to the point where we think, is it really so bad if it doesn't outwardly hurt anybody? Consider the first sin. If you were a, I don't know, if you were a cow standing there grazing in the field as watching Eve, what would it have looked like? Looked like she just took a piece of fruit off a tree and ate it. But what did that do? It damned all creation. And such is every sin. It looks harmless from the outside. And it may seem harmless from the outside. But really, the danger is beyond measure. It's all rebellion against God saying, God, I don't really need to listen to you. I don't really need to listen to your word. I don't really care about what you have to say. It's all rebelling against God. In the case of adultery, it's not just breaking the sixth commandment. But it's breaking the first and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth and probably more along the way. And this is the reality that Jesus preaches about. This is the reality that Jesus teaches us about today. The reality of our tragic situation being steeped in sin. As human beings with a sinful nature, we are not able not to sin. And many of the choices that we make from day to day in thought or word or action are like a game of would you rather. You ever played that game? Would you rather spend two years in prison or would you rather shoot yourself in the foot? Think of an, a real tragic situation that's going on right now. Sadly, you hear stories and situations where, uh, like uh, over in Turkey, or you have an earthquake and there's thousands upon thousands of people that are missing or dying, and you want to save every last life. What if a rescue worker is given the choice between saving a child and pulling out a concrete slab? But pulling out that concrete slab means destabilizing the rest of the ruins and putting hundreds of others at risk. The reality of sin is just as tragic. It affects everything that we say and everything that we do. Every thought, word, and action. It affects even our best good works. 
making them all worthless. It affects our relationship with people. It affects our relationship with God. All sin is equal, no matter how minuscule or how severe we judge it to be. And it's why Jesus calls out for the drastic measures that He does so in the text. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Dissect the sinful nature. See the tragedy that it is. See the hopelessness in it for what it is. And see what sin drove the human race to do. Look behind me. It's up there on our wall. We use this as an example in our uh, uh, chapel on Wednesday. You see the price that was paid for our sin. It is on the wall behind me. The suffering and the death of Christ. The death of God's Son. And the realization hits us that for my murderous thoughts, for my murderous actions, for my deepest, most coveting desires, that punishment should be mine. It should be mine. But now, look behind you. Seriously, look behind you. What's in the window and what's above his head? He stands there. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of Christ standing there with his arms open. With the nail prints in his hands and the banner, he is risen above his head. That was the punishment paid for the sins of the world. And that's proof that it's, it's accepted. That it's over. That death is now just a shadow of its former self. Because the guilt and the penalty for sin has been paid in full. Look who took your place, who is not now dead, but is living. Who crushed the tomb and made sin and death nothing more than defeated generals lying down in the, in the mud at the feet of a victor. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. All sin is not just equal because it all deserves damnation and hell. All sin is made equal because there was one price paid for it. The suffering and death of Christ Jesus, God's one and only Son. The sins of all people of all time. The mountain of debt accrued by the human race since the very beginning. Yours, mine, everyone's is not enough. Is not worth as much as one drop of Jesus' blood. Death couldn't hold Him. And it won't hold you. Because of His victory, there is hope. Because death and hell and guilt are vanquished. And now your eternity looks much different. It looks much different than it did before. Peace and joy and love beyond understanding. Because of Christ, this is what we hope for. And so then when you look out at the world, when you look within yourself, when you see the hopelessness of sinfulness, the depth of its depravity, the hell to which it would surely lead you, stop. Repent. You know what repenting means? It simply means turn around. 
just means turn around. Stop in your tracks, turn around, and look at your Savior and what He has done for you. Turn toward your Savior who teaches you that there is no hope, not within yourself, not in some other person, certainly not out there in the world. What a blessing it is to know. What a blessing it is to be able to encourage each other. What a blessing it is that when we ourselves feel, the, 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 feel racked with guilt, what a blessing it is to know where our hope lies. That there is no hope without Christ. Amen. That's all there is for today. There isn't any more for this podcast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, you might consider subscribing to the podcast and you will get content four times weekly in your favorite podcast app with no further effort. Additionally, you might consider sharing it with a friend. Each and every podcast has a share link in its description, which can be found in the same podcast app you're listening to right now. Let me know if you can't find it or if you just want to say hello by emailing me at john.kirk at stmarkbemidji.org. Share God's word and share the light of the world. I also want to take this opportunity to invite you to church with us. Each and every week, we have two church services in Bemidji, Minnesota at 2220 Ann Street on Sundays at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Additionally, we have a completely free cup of coffee that comes with a complimentary Bible study at 9.15 a.m. Each and every Bible study is led by a certified and college-educated minister. Or maybe you live in Walker, Minnesota. On the second and fourth Monday of every month, we also have church services there at 1100 Minnesota Avenue West at 7 p.m. Come as you are, and I hope to see you soon. If you have more questions or you want more information about our ministry, check out our website at www.stmarkbemidji.org. Have a blessed rest of your day.